Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Saturday, as Russian troops retreated from the suburbs and towns near Kyiv, horrors emerged on social media that were soon verified by multiple news agencies. Bodies of murdered civilians strewn through the streets, and mass graves were discovered with hundreds of dead. Even as the war in Ukraine grinds on into a third calendar month, the effort to document Russian war crimes is well underway. In today's podcast, we're going to take an in-depth look at the documentation of potential war crimes in Ukraine, including the enormous effort to collect physical evidence and interviews from witnesses, combined with various forms of signal intelligence, data, and media artifacts gathered from social media platforms. And we'll hear directly from people on the ground in Ukraine doing the work of coordinating the gathering of evidence as well as individuals involved in the international effort to help gather and prepare that evidence for venues such as the International Criminal Court. On March 23rd, the United States government announced its formal determination that Russian troops have committed war crimes in Ukraine. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the assessment was made on the basis of a careful review of public intelligence sources. Yesterday, Russian forces bombed a theater in Mariupol where hundreds of people had been taking shelter. The word children had been written in Russian in giant white letters on the pavement outside the building so that you could know from the air that there were children inside. Russian forces also opened fire on 10 civilians uh, who were waiting in line uh, for bread. These incidents uh, join a long list of attacks on civilian, not military locations across Ukraine, including apartment buildings, public squares, and last week, a maternity hospital in Mariupol. Uh, I doubt that any of us who saw those images will ever forget them. We've seen Russia use similar tactics before in Grozny, in Aleppo. Uh, They stepped up their bombardment with the goal of breaking the will of the people. Yesterday, President Biden said that, in his opinion, war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Personally, I agree. We are committed to pursuing accountability using every tool available, including criminal prosecutions, his statement read. Accountability, though, requires evidence. The collection and preservation of digital media and other evidentiary material in Ukraine is a massive undertaking. It is being met by brave Ukrainian officials and local civil society groups operating in besieged cities and towns, as well as by an international coalition of human rights, open source intelligence, and digital forensics researchers. This loose coalition is drawing strength from relationships formed with one another and lessons learned while investigating past conflicts, including in Syria, Yemen, Myanmar, and elsewhere. The ongoing effort in Ukraine, then, can be seen as a part of an evolution, or a maturation, of an expanding community of volunteers and professionals gathering user-generated evidence and open-source intelligence. It may also present a crucial test of whether the evidence produced by these methods can play a substantial role in securing convictions. What follows is a snapshot of the effort and progress, based on interviews with more than a dozen individuals representing a sample of organizations. It reveals some of the key challenges facing this growing field, the reliance on volunteers working in the midst of a conflict, security threats and coordination problems flowing from the overcollection of material, and the centrality of social media platforms that were never designed with atrocity documentation in mind. 
Still, the reality that prosecutions cannot succeed without evidence drives those doing this work. U.S. recognition of war crimes comes more than eight years after Russian President Vladimir Putin's first invasion of Ukraine, when his troops took the Crimean Peninsula and cleaved off Donetsk and Luhansk. For a committed coalition of Ukrainian and international organizations dedicated to collecting and preserving evidence of human rights violations, the documentation of Russian war crimes began in that first wave of invasion and occupation in 2014. For these groups, Secretary Blinken's announcement may be a reminder that authorities such as the U.S. government have been slow to acknowledge and fully grapple with Russian atrocities on Ukrainian soil since 2014. I heard this perspective from Katerina Busel. Uh, my name is Katerina Busel. I'm a Ukrainian international lawyer and also a senior lecturer at the uh, National University of Kyiv Mohyla Academy. It saddens me to see that the international community needed such a catalyst at a full-scale invasion of Russia to get the things going. Uh, even the rhetorics that we see in certain international law and policy analysis speaks about the Russian invasion or the Russian aggression, which started uh, on the uh, 24th of February. But of course, we know that this is all part of the larger encroachment on Ukraine's sovereignty since 2014. And this would be my key message, that unfortunately, the scale that we see now is, of course, unparalleled, but is totally connected to the patterns of Russia's crimes perpetrated since 2014. So, for instance, if we look at enforced disappearances and torture of political opponents, journalists and human rights defenders, it's something that has been documented very well by Ukrainian human rights groups, by the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission, by other human rights organizations. And this evidence has been there since 2014. It has been part of domestic proceedings, which, to the surprise, I think, of many have actually been uh, developed. But it, this evidence also has been sent to the International Criminal Court. And unfortunately, again, eight years of these violations were there, and we needed this bloody invasion and the new totally um, awful uh, threshold to violence by Russia to catalyze action. Ukrainian human rights groups and the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission have been documenting serious human rights abuses since Russia's original invasion. Uh, my name is Alexandra Matvichuk. I'm human rights defender, head of Center for Civil Liberties. Alexandra Matvichuk was among the first to organize the documentation of war crimes in Crimea and the east of Ukraine. She says her group coordinated thousands of volunteers following the Euromaidan protests at the end of 2013 and early weeks of 2014. Those were the pro-democracy events that served as a trigger for the initial Russian invasion. Now, her organization is coping with the new reality of the current invasion. Our main focus was uh, legal detention, abduction, extrajudicial killings, tortures, and cruel treatment with uh, detainees. Uh, majority of them were civilians, uh, among them were men, women, and even children. Uh, what changed uh, since uh, the February this year? When Russia started a well, uh, large-scale invasion parallel on four fronts, the scope of war crimes uh, increased rapidly. Also, a lot of my colleagues from other human rights organizations joined to army or territorial defense and couldn't continue their human rights work. Uh, that's why, for current moment, we overloaded with uh, work uh, how to quickly document war crimes. 
And in order to do it, we restore our initiative Yevromaidan SOS and made a general call for ordinary people to join us as volunteers. Another documentation group, Truth Hounds, which has conducted forensic investigations of international crime scenes across Eastern Europe since 2014, is facing the same problem. Both organizations have recruited new volunteers to help, but training them in documentation methodology is no small task. My name is uh, Marina Slobodenyuk, and I'm a documenter, investigator, and analytics at the Truth Hounds NGO Ukraine. There are six or seven reports we have already issued on documenting war crimes. We had to literally to work uh, days and nights and uh, to, to be able to do this. But now I, I can say that we have totally documented the first days and the first weeks of uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. Dmitry Koval also works with Truth Hounds. He's a human rights legal expert and associate professor at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy. He says new limitations on investigations in the active war zone mean investigators are focusing more on collecting open source information to provide leads to pursue interviews with witnesses. Since uh, uh, this conflict is in a very hot phase and uh, there is no even like stable um, contact line or front line, it's constantly moving and uh, in many places you can see control by Russian forces of some roads without any control of uh, territory that is enclosed to those roads. So it makes very hard to travel to the places where the conflict is and moreover it's uh, in many, uh, many cases is even prohibited by the warring parties. Again, understandably. So uh, what we do now is no is uh, we can't now um, uh, use our traditional methodology, and uh, instead of that, we uh, concentrate on uh, open source investigations. So we gather open source uh, intelligence. We, um, of course, digest it, uh, process it, and afterwards uh, we come up with some conclusions where whether there, there are some reasons to believe uh, that the war crimes or other violations of international humanitarian law occurred. Since we don't have access to the, the um, battleground, to the places where uh, alleged uh, IHL violations were committed, we have to at least interview victims and witnesses. And th- th- that is uh, another avenue, or th- another line of activity activities that we are going to uh, launch uh, for, from now on. While the hardiness of the Ukrainian government and civil society effort to document war crimes is apparent, a growing global community of organizations has also directed its considerable resources at Ukraine. Some of the organizations in this loose coalition cut their teeth in the 2014 Russian invasion or have experience working together in Syria, another war that has produced a volume of Russian war crimes, and elsewhere. So my name is Hadil Khatib. I work uh, with Mnemonic, uh, which is a nonprofit organization uh, based in Berlin. With Mnemonic, we are working to uh, support uh, human rights groups, journalists and lawyers to effectively use digital documentation to support advocacy and accountability. Uh, I work as the executive director of this organization since 2018. There is a huge difference, Justin, between the community that is involved uh, and has been doing this work a few years ago, how it started and how this work was being done in Syria and and right now. The main difference is the, the maturity of the work itself 
the capacity that the organizations have to react very quickly in such crisis situations, such as in Ukraine, uh, the availability of uh, clear protocols to work on open source investigation, which was uh, not there when we started this work in Syria uh, in 2014. Syria was one of the first countries where mass amount of media was being published about the conflict. Uh, it's been 10 years of that conflict and millions of records documenting it. We needed to find a solution to deal with that. Right now, what we learned, this is what exactly we are applying in Ukraine from day one. Uh, we've been working uh, for 10 years, the whole community um, in Syria and Yemen and Sudan and Hong Kong and the US and Latin America and in many different countries uh, doing the same work of verifying digital content published on social media platforms, uh, documenting human rights violations and uh, these years of experience resulted in us being able to uh, act in a very concrete way when it comes to the uh, invasion. Mnemonic was able to almost immediately provide technical infrastructure for international and local human rights groups documenting and archiving material. He also points to improved protocols and verification procedures as key to helping ensure the information collected is valuable to accountability efforts in the future. One key development that Hadi points to is the creation in 2020 of the Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations, a set of standards and a practical guide to the collection and use of open source information in the investigation of human rights violations. The protocol covers everything from ethical principles and legal frameworks through to each stage of the open source investigation cycle. Lindsay Freeman, Director of Law and Policy for the Tech and Human Rights Program at UC Berkeley's Human Rights Center and one of the authors of the Berkeley Protocol, is helping groups in Ukraine standardize their efforts and adapt and apply the protocol in this specific situation. What we're doing is really advising people on the Berkeley Protocol, assisting with training or consultations or whatever the need is. We're prioritizing this advice to Ukrainian NGOs just because there's an incredibly robust civil society sector in Ukraine who has been working on collecting this type of evidence since 2014. So they're clearly the best place um, and best suited to be doing this work. So to the degree possible, we can empower them to be doing all of this. That's what we're trying to do. But we're also playing a bit of a matchmaker role um, in trying to map out all the different groups, both international and Ukrainian, who are involved in this type of work. In the past year, we've had several of these rapid response incidents, starting with the insurrection on January 6th, followed by the Myanmar coup. We also had Afghanistan in August and everything that was happening there, and now Ukraine. And even in those few instances over the course of a year, I've seen huge improvement in how people are able to jump in and start doing this work and how groups are already set up to do the intake and to have a methodology for the tagging. So there's huge improvement. There's definitely a level of professionalism and having different groups come together more as well. It also helps that some of the behaviors of the principal actor fit patterns that have been observed before. The Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, or DFR Lab, put together comprehensive records of the siege of Aleppo, for instance, Graham Brookie, Senior Director of DFR Lab, explained it to me. 
we put together comprehensive records of the siege of Aleppo in particular, where we see, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the same playbook, bombing hospitals, targeting aid workers, targeting civilians, playing out in, in Ukraine right now. We saw it again in eastern Buda, uh, not two years later in Syria, the, outside of the suburbs of Damascus. It's the same siege tactics. Uh, it's the same uh, indiscriminate warfare tactics uh, that we've seen in Syria for sure. Now, there wasn't accountability for what happened in Syria. And so I think a lot of the lessons learned across this very collaborative community that is committed to A, a shared set of facts, and B, accountability for things like war crimes, which we need to be clear about that, war crimes. I think we've, we've gotten better. I think we've, we know what to expect, especially from uh, information operations that deploy disinformation as a way to deny or deflect responsibility for things like war crimes. And so I'm, uh, it would be very, very hard to do this work without some semblance of optimism or hope that we've learned lessons and gotten better. We're better prepared for, uh, to hold Russia in particular accountable for what they are doing to Ukraine right now. Such pattern recognition means seeing linkages sooner, which could lead to understanding issues like chain of command, direction of firing, identification of specific military units, munitions markings, detailing any chain of custody and handling the evidence and other details and elements that could hasten prosecutors' jobs. Steve Costas, a lawyer with the Open Society Justice Initiative, which is part of the Open Society Foundations, says this is evidence of the progress the community has made since the Syrian conflict. Already at this very early stage, groups are thinking about linkage evidence much, much earlier than they have in the past. This is sort of information that uh, in the Syrian context, nobody looked at for, for years until you know after the event. So uh, there's much more attention paid to uh, the types of information that will be necessary to build perpetrator linkage. Another factor that may help propel investigators and efforts at accountability is the number of Russian soldiers presumably including Russian officers, already in Ukrainian custody. We might see here different timeline than what happened in Syria in terms of cases taking forward, especially with uh, Russians that are involved in the uh, invasion of Ukraine right now uh, that are captured, for example. They could be uh, on trial uh, very soon. This is something that uh, is, is very different from, uh, from the Syrian context. There are other advantages to a more mature community of professional organizations. Hadi points to efficiencies that come with more clarity on the roles and capacities of different groups, while Graham Brookie points out that collectively groups have been able to share what they have learned about how to deal with issues ranging from vicarious trauma experienced by analysts to security and technology issues. The scale of the conflict in Ukraine has invited new organizations and individuals who seek to participate in the documentation effort. A number of the experts interviewed for this report underscored that there is more than enough work to be done, so newcomers are welcome. Dimitro Zolotukin, an expert on open source investigations, a lecturer at Kiev Mohila Academy, and a former deputy minister of information policy for Ukraine, told me that hundreds of people in different countries are now working on gathering and verifying massive proof of war crimes but that there are risks to relying on less experienced groups. John Scott Railton, a senior researcher at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School, underscored this point. In a sense, one positive about the situation is that many groups sort of know each other and have a sense of who, who has been reliable and on what and when. 
what we're still learning, of course, is for a lot of the new entrants, whether it's sort of like formalized efforts or group projects or just individual voices, we're all learning a lot um, about the reliability, backgrounds, potential slants of some of those those groups. And I think we're going to learn it across time, if nothing else. Um, in many ways, this is about watching uh, how people engage with these things over time and you know the standards they hold themselves to. Elliot Higgins, founder of the open source investigations organization Bellingcat, says a key factor is to figure out how to bring new people into the system in a way that makes their output useful to investigators, whether they are doing journalism or accountability work. Um, it's it's more kind of organizational issue. I mean, there's, there's such a vast amount of data out there. It's more figuring out how we can get all those people who are looking at these videos and doing useful things with them and feeding that into a process where it's then useful for kind of actors who are kind of late, later in the process. So be they kind of investigators for, you know, working on kind of media, kind of journalism stories, or are they kind of accountability investigators or are they something else? And for us at Bellingcat, it was kind of recognizing the most valuable thing you can do in the initial moment moments is archive as much of this content as possible in an organized fashion because we're even seeing now that videos and photographs are being deleted from the original sources but we've got archived copies of those that are archived in such a way that they can be used in future accountability processes so that has been our kind of you know focus of the last few weeks setting that up and now we're moving into a stage where we're able to get our investigation teams working on investigations um one on the kind of editorial side that's more about getting stories out about what's happening in the moment and then on the other side longer term justice and accountability investigations that are using a process we've developed to actually um you know investigate these to standards where basically case files on this individual instance can be submitted to accountability processes and our researchers can act as expert witnesses on those investigations when it comes to meeting the evidentiary standards for venues like the international criminal court steve costas says this will be a test for the community while there's been a great deal of learning and effort put into capacity building around the gathering of open source evidence there's less experience with using it in legal proceedings. You know, there's a fair amount of learning uh, around the collection of digital and open source information for use as evidence, but we'll only be finding out how well our understanding of that, uh, how well we understand that um, as cases from Ukraine go forward, because we haven't had that many cases involving open source and digital evidence. So, so you know, the protocols that we've worked out uh, the Berkeley Protocol and the methods that people have been employing haven't really been put to the test in that many proceedings yet. It's on civil society and government donors, et cetera, to make sure that the methods that we're setting up right now are you know, pre-screened and, and uh, look like they will stand up in court. To date, user-generated video and photographic evidence has been used by war crimes prosecutors on a limited but increasing basis. Those include obtaining an arrest warrant for a militia leader in Libya in the ICC's case of Mahmoud Mustafa Baisaif al-Warfali, securing the ICC's first guilty plea in the case of Ahmad al-Faki al-Mahdi of Mali, and trials for outrages on personal dignity and other inhumane treatment in Germany, Finland, and Sweden. In gathering evidence, including witness testimony in Ukraine, groups that are new to the work or that are working with volunteers who have had minimal training may introduce risks. Rebecca Hamilton, an associate professor at American University, who previously worked in the prosecution division at the International Criminal Court, told me that her concern is that testimony gathered in the midst of a crisis may not be usable by prosecutors who have their own set of guidelines they need to follow. 
Knowing the difference between the evidentiary standards required by a criminal court as compared to a group wanting to raise public awareness or do human rights advocacy is crucial, agrees Berkeley's Freeman. One thing I've found is that there are a lot of groups who say they're collecting for legal accountability, but they don't have lawyers. They're not necessarily following the very strict procedures that are required by many criminal courts in order to you know, protect the rights of the defense, um, which is an important thing, which collection for other purposes really doesn't take into consideration. In addition to the challenge of ensuring the quality of documentation, the sheer quantity of information being collected presents another challenge. Last month, the International Criminal Court opened a portal through which civil society groups should submit potential evidence. And Katerina Busal identifies a number of similar initiatives in Ukraine. Uh, you probably know that a joint portal for submitting evidence um, about the alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity has been created by the NGOs. There are separate portals created by the Office of the Prosecutor General and then the one announced by the Office of the President. And there's also another specialized portal announced by the Ministry of Culture, submit, uh, inviting to submit um, evidence um, of the violations concerning cultural heritage of Ukraine. So uh, we can speak in a way about the proliferation of efforts, but I think it's a natural um, response at this stage, you know, when everybody Mm -hmm. has been taken aback by the harshness of Russia's action. Um, I'm expecting that uh, uh, in a week or a month, we will see uh, like the merger of these initiatives, or at least that there will be certain clarification as to how they function. Also, there is a positive sign that the, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has set a special channel for submitting evidence on Ukraine. So I think that will also uh, generate certain change of of the strategy between Ukraine's and within Ukraine's NGO and and prosecutors as to how they merge the evidence that they have collected on the ground and how they transfer it further to the ICC. This proliferation means that those doing documentation may try to upload their evidence to multiple locations which could raise chain-of-custody concerns for criminal courts. Different portals may also have different evidentiary requirements, further adding to workload of documentation groups. Other experts are less confident. Rebecca Hamilton told me that we are witnessing a massive overcollection of material without the systems in place to coordinate how that material is actually going to be used. She says documentation is not an end in itself. The Citizen Lab's John Scott Relton raises further concerns about volume, particularly with regard to video. And I think people who 10 years ago were cutting their teeth on you know, tracking and open source investigations in the Arab Spring and so on, and the Crimean conflict are now looking at some of these newer platforms, things like TikTok, and thinking, man, how do we, how do, we do large-scale investigations here? How do we even gather information about the kinds of videos that are being seen? How do we do it at scale? How do we process that content, ingest it, and think about it? These are all really exciting questions. And to me, it just means that the space is going to be constantly alive uh, and will constantly have new needs, new techniques, and, and new ways of formulating and answering questions. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. You're listening to a special episode of the Tech Policy Press podcast. It's based on a piece published this week under the headline, Ukraine May Mark a Turning Point in Documenting War Crimes, 
and it was cross-published with Just Security. I want to thank Just Security's Ryan Goodman for his editorial guidance on the piece. Now, let's get back to it. Ukraine is not only a test for the community of human rights and open source investigators, it is also a test for social media platforms, which play host to vast volumes of material posted by users on the ground, including citizens and soldiers. While some of the experts interviewed for this report suggested tech platforms have generally made non-trivial progress, there is a sense the firms still have not fully grasped the nature of the responsibility they have in these conflict scenarios. Lindsay Freeman says that while the tech platforms appear to have more political will to engage on these issues, they are still setting their own rules and policies and changing them as they see fit. She believes the tech platforms need to do more to create working relationships with civil society, particularly beyond working with only major international NGOs. One option is for them to provide direct channels of communications with vetted local organizations and networks. There are a lot more channels for civil society to connect there, but I still don't think it's everyone and not necessarily equal. I think, you know, the big international NGOs like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have much better connections there than local NGOs. And especially when a new conflict starts, it's not necessarily going to be the Ukrainian or Afghan or Ethiopian local NGOs who will have any idea how to connect to those tech companies. So having a bit more equality there would be important. Having a bit more consistency would be important. All that said, I think particularly in the situation in Ukraine, tech companies are stepping up in a way that I haven't seen them step up before and really prioritizing this over some of the other considerations they would prioritize in other situations. Of course, the main challenge for investigators is the loss of content, which is often taken down by content moderation algorithms or human moderators. For years, activists have asked for evidence lockers and other means to preserve content from conflict zones. Amri Mutwale, a former member of YouTube's content policy and enforcement team, wrote in Slate recently about the, quote, highly dependent dance with the tech titans, a policy change, an enforcement modification, a poorly trained moderator, an imprecise detection algorithm, an inadequate appeals mechanism can all lead to the erasure of material. He advocates for platforms to establish a common trust to which users in conflict zones could flag content. The Oversight Board, the quasi-independent entity set up by Meta to hear appeals of content moderation decisions on Facebook and Instagram, has invited public comment on a case related to an incident in Sudan that queries, quote, whether Meta's policies on violent and graphic content provide sufficient protection of users documenting or raising awareness of human rights violations. In its decision, the Oversight Board may make non-binding policy recommendations to the company on issues such as, quote, how Meta's content moderation, including the use of automation, impacts freedom of expression and documentation of human rights violations during a conflict, and how negative impacts may be prevented or mitigated. For Bellingcat's Higgins, the answer is simply not to rely on social media platforms at all. He advises setting up systems to ingest as much content from the platforms as soon as possible. I mean, there's always an issue with moderation that, you know, if you're, you've got material coming a conflict zone, it's showing bodies and terrible things, that some of that content's going to get removed. People remove content themselves, and we can't expect the social media companies to give us special access to stuff users have removed themselves. So this is, again, why archiving from day one is so important, that we grab this stuff before it goes. Um, and because of the many different um, factors that affect social media companies and their behavior, we don't want to kind of predict 
predict what they might be doing in the future in the hope that they give us the content or preserve it. So we kind of have to take that on ourselves as kind of almost first responders to that content. Imanak's Hadi Khatib believes certain platforms could do more to provide access to select human rights watchdogs to require relevant data, such as providing access similar to that provided to academic researchers. He'd like more capacity to archive user tweets than is available through the platform's public interface, for instance. Uh, social media companies still have a huge role in what's happening. Right now, unfortunately, still they have very limited involvement to facilitate our work. For example, there is a lot of content published about documentation Ukraine published on Twitter. If we use public uh, API within Twitter, it allows us to uh, collect around 3,500 from every user. We would absolutely need more capacity to be able to uh, archive uh, more content from, from certain users that are very active documenting the conflict. And we reach out to Twitter about this, and this was not uh, possible for human rights organizations yet. It's possible for academic institutions, but not for the human rights community, which is really disappointing, especially after 10 years of doing this work in Syria and in other countries. I think it's really important that social media companies invest resources and in making sure that uh, the work of the human rights community is, is facilitated in a way that documentation is uh, well monitored, well archived and verified. And I think in the end of the day, this would really be very helpful for all this information propaganda that is right now more or less controlling the narrative. We see very little verified information being published and lots of propaganda uh, be being published. And I think if we uh, have more facilitation from social media companies to uh, support the work of the human rights community, we will be able to uh, be more effective to produce a counter-narrative to this information uh, right now uh, on Ukraine, uh, for example. So unfortunately, uh, they have a big role. They are not really investing uh, enough resources to make sure that uh, the work of the human rights community is, is really facilitated. There are high hopes in this community about the possibility of, that all the gathered evidence can be used. Venues for potential criminal accountability include the International Criminal Court, or ICC. ICC prosecutor Karim Khan announced he has opened an investigation into the current conflict. 41 states have petitioned his office to open that investigation. On March 10th, he requested arrest warrants for several Russian-supported officials accused of war crimes during the 2008 Russia-Georgia conflict. In making his statement, he said, My office has made findings of similar patterns of conduct during its preliminary examination of the situation in Ukraine. There is also the possibility that a special international tribunal could be established to prosecute the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Three proposals include a UN General Assembly-backed model, an ad hoc multinational model, and a hybrid tribunal with the Council of Europe. Ukraine is investigating and can prosecute crimes committed on its own territory. These efforts are being led by Ukraine's Prosecutor General, Irina Venediktova. There is also the notion of delegated jurisdiction. Lithuania, Poland, and Ukraine have established a joint investigative team, a prominent expert on war crimes tribunals, Professor Diane Orenlecker describes this as the nucleus of a brand of criminal authority best described as delegated jurisdiction, in which Ukraine's participation by agreement provides an additional legal basis for the states to investigate or prosecute. 
and through universal jurisdiction, other nations may investigate and prosecute war crimes, even when the alleged actions did not occur on their own territory, and neither the perpetrator nor victims are nationals. Germany, for instance, has recently prosecuted war crimes in Syria on the basis of universal jurisdiction. There are other venues for potential accountability outside of the criminal context. These include the European Court of Human Rights, the International Court of Justice, an OSCE monitoring mechanism, and a UN Council on Human Rights Commission of Inquiry. Before proceedings can get underway in any of these venues, though, the war may have to be won. But in the longer term, one way or another, the current conflict in Ukraine will eventually represent only one point on the timeline of the evolution of digital investigations of conflict and war. The experts interviewed for this report argue more funding is needed to train individuals and organizations and to build more human and technical infrastructure to reliably do this work in the future. That might mean requiring nations investing in a shared capacity, perhaps in the United Nations or through another mechanism, says Lindsay Freeman. I do think the other place, tech companies, not necessarily the social media companies or governments as well, um, could really step up their help in this effort is in funding. Um, in funding the right people and also for the tech infrastructure for digital forensics and having more of those professional digital forensics experts deployed would be very helpful. So that means the states uh, investing way more in the International Criminal Court for a case like Ukraine. It means way more funding going to NGOs like Mnemonic that have already have this like proven test model where they can build these archives And I think ultimately having a permanent independent investigative mechanism, similar to the models that they've used in Myanmar, Syria, and Iraq, having something permanent like that that's already set up is sort of the long-term answer to this. So I hope that's something states open themselves up to more. Bellingcat's Elliot Higgins imagines more of a network. I don't really see there'll be like one central investigating body, more a network of investigating bodies who are kind of working independently of each other, but able to share information with each other. So a big part of what we're doing alongside the archiving is creating centralized indexing systems. So you can search all those indexes from one centralized um, index. So that makes it easier for those kind of end stakeholders in the accountability industry to actually get that information rapidly. And for me, my hope is in, you know, 10 years time, we'll be having so many eyes on that material, you know, both the kind of ad hoc public kind of space like we're seeing in Ukraine, feeding into organizations who are collecting this and rapidly making it available to accountability processes who can more, you know, easily find and access this information when they're working on those processes. It also means that from day one, they can actually have useful information rather than spending kind of weeks and months setting up a process and finding the evidence. It's not only the investigators of war crimes that are looking into the future, of course. The perpetrators are evolving their behaviors and capabilities as well. One key area of concern is the use of disinformation campaigns and tactics to deflect blame for war crimes, says Steve Costas. One of the differences, perhaps, between this conflict and, and you know, it's similar to what we've seen in Syria, but I think it'll be even a greater problem, is this issue of disinformation, misinformation, and the, the real need to build up verification capacity within, uh, within civil society. Um, and journalists covering the conflict, Um, just because in the Syrian context, many of the narratives that were subject to the greatest amount of disinformation are linked to Russian, are sort of are about Russian linked crimes. And I would expect that to be even more uh, the case in this conflict. 
there will also be a perpetual need to improve cybersecurity for the individuals and organizations engaged in investigative work, including the portals and databases used to collect and store evidence, a point underscored by Katarina Basal. I think both the civil society portals and state portals uh, are in danger and Russia's uh, resort to cyber warfare and cyber attacks is known. Um, So I'm hoping that the um, authors of these portals, the managers of these portals, take that into account. Um, What I would say is important is that the leading human rights NGOs that have collected evidence and submitted evidence for domestic prosecutions and to the International Criminal Court and other courts for years, I uh, suspect that they just use the channels which are verified and used for years. So for them, this is something more secured. Uh, But I agree with you that the security of the new portals is something that has to be monitored and enhanced all the time. And actually, today, perhaps you uh, heard that uh, the broadcast on one of the national TV channels has been hijacked and kind of the President allegedly spoke about the need to, uh, well, lay down the arms. So I think it's another indicator that Russia would, does and will try to attack in all fields, including in cyber. Therefore, securing these uh, new channels is important, but also developing the existing channels, the the ones that have been tested. uh, I think it's something that at least human rights NGOs focus on. In the current conflict, the Ukrainian government is doing its best to protect web resources related to the collection and publication of information on war crimes. Viktor Zhura, deputy head of the state's Service for Special Communication and Information Protection of Ukraine, says his office has observed these resources being mentioned as hacking targets in Russian telegram channels. I'm wondering if the Ukrainian government um, or your office is doing anything in particular uh, to protect the cybersecurity of groups collecting evidence of war crimes. Uh, I know that there are multiple portals and databases that the Ukrainian government and uh, officials have set up to to collect that information. Thanks for the question. Of course, uh, uh, this activity is structured, is organized, and we see the attempts to hack the web, re- web resources that publish information on uh, war crimes. Uh, we see these targets in uh, uh, Russian uh, telegram channels. Of course, uh, we uh, put our efforts on protecting of these websites. But with regards to people, mostly volunteers, that uh, provide data to these responsible groups, since uh, they are scattered uh, it, and uh, probably confident of potential uh, risks in cybersecurity, we, of course, can advise to them, but uh, I believe that uh, uh, they can handle it uh, by themselves. For those working in the field, there is at once hope that there will be accountability and yet frustration at how hard it is to achieve. Those on the front lines in Ukraine right now feel this acutely. Alexandra Mapvichuk describes the pain of learning of such a high volume of terrible crimes and not being able to stop them. I saw that uh, a lot of international organizations focused on documentation of war crimes, and this is important work. Uh, But I have been documented war crimes for years. And uh, frankly speaking, I have always such frustration feeling because you spoke with uh, people who, and they told you how they were beaten, raped, uh, uh, whose fingers were cut, whose eyes were pulled out with spoons and uh, tortured with electricity. And you know for sure that this will repeat it. 
tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, or it's in the same second somebody is tortures, torturing in the same way. So international uh, justice, unfortunately, is delayed in time. And it's important to document uh, war crimes and to provide and build a very strong evidence and very strong legal case. But now we also need to solve much more important, uh, not important, even difficult task, more difficult task. How to stop this war crimes for current moment? How, or at least to make a frozen effect to their brutality? Uh, how, what we can do as international community in order to uh, prevent a new victims of war crimes to emerge? This is the most uh, difficult task which I ask for myself. Reflecting on his decade doing this work, Hadi Al-Khatib thinks first of the people who have put their lives at risk, the people who have died to gather the evidence in the archives he has helped create from Syria a decade ago to Ukraine today. Whatever uh, international organizations are going to be also bringing or institutions uh, when it comes to justice, it won't happen without the involvement of, of the people capturing this evidence. Uh, and in this case, for example, the Ukrainian uh, civilians and groups and, and organizations. So this is a very big and important part of the work that we always see people being excluded. The people who yeah. put them, themselves at risk. Yes. Yeah. And, and some of them who lost their lives doing it. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to all the experts that spoke to me for this report. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.